seated. In uh, the opening, uh, I've been starting a preaching series through uh, 2 Corinthians, and uh, in the opening large section of this letter, uh, the Apostle Paul begins his defense of his apostleship, his calling, his gifts, the decisions that he's made, because there are those in the congregation in Corinth which have become critical of him. Not everybody, not necessarily most, but there is a significant contingent that uh, has become critical of him. And so Paul begins this letter by defending his integrity. And so we have looked at this rather lengthy passage for a couple of weeks. We're going to look at it this morning one more time, particularly the last two verses of chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2. We've worked our way through the entirety of the rest of the text. So I want to bring together the concluding handful of verses this morning. But again, I want to read uh, the entire passage, 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with holiness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you can read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. And then the first four verses of chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Integrity. Back in uh, 1925, uh, the U.S. Open Golf Championship was held at Worcester Country Club in Massachusetts. 
And uh, at that U.S. Open were many of the historic golfing greats. And uh, in that first round of the U.S. Open in 1925, uh, Bobby Jones was paired with Walter Hagen. And uh, on the 11th tee, as, um, as Bobby Jones drove his ball, it ended up not staying on the fairway, but it went off into the rough. And so he got the iron he was going to use ready to make his second shot. And as he addressed the ball, he felt his club move the ball just a fraction of a hair. And he quickly backed off, and he said to Walter Hagen, I inadvertently moved the ball. I'm going to assess myself a one-stroke penalty. Well, Walter Hagen, who was in competition with him, was like, no, you, there's no need to do that. The ball didn't roll anywhere, that kind of thing. Um, no, don't assess yourself a penalty stroke. The uh, referees, the officials didn't see it. The spectators didn't see it. But Bobby Jones was insistent, and so the officials got together and they had a discussion. And the decision was, okay, you're allowed to make your own ruling on whether or not you should be penalized. And so Jones said, I'm absolutely certain that my ball moved ever so slightly. And so he penalized himself. And he said to the officials, I saw it move. Even if nobody else did, that's enough. That was round one. Well, he fought back over the next handful of days. And um, on the last day of competition, on the final hole, on the 18th green, he had to make a five-foot putt to earn a tie, and he missed it. And he lost the open by one stroke. Over his career, if you know anything about that great golfer, Bobby Jones, he won multiple majors. Uh, he won dozens of tournaments, uh, important matches. But it was his integrity, not all of his wins, but it was his integrity that propelled him to national prominence. And people everywhere praised him for his amazing sportsmanship. He would have none of it. Here was his response. You might as well praise me for not robbing a bank. Integrity. That story from the 1925 U.S. Open illustrates what that word integrity is all about. It means that you are honest no matter what, no matter who is looking, no matter the circumstances, and no matter the consequences. In Bobby Jones's case, losing the U.S. Open. Integrity. Here in our text, as we've talked about these last couple weeks, Paul is defending the fact that he changed his travel plan. Uh, what he was going to do, as he describes it here, and this is actually version two of his travel plans, he was going to come directly across the Aegean Sea, from the city of Ephesus, sail westward across the Aegean Sea to the city of Corinth. Then he was going to spend a little time with them, go north to Macedonia, visit the churches up there, come back south to Corinth, um, a, a second experience of grace, two visits, and then he was hopeful they would send him by way of boat on his way to Judea and then overland to the city of Jerusalem. 
And so those were the plans. But instead, what happened is Paul came overland by, Cor by, by Macedonia. He didn't come directly to Corinth. He went up north to Macedonia, Thessalonica, Philippi, those places. And then he came south to Corinth, and he made only one visit. And the Corinthians wanted to know, so what's going on? Maybe we can't trust what you say. Maybe your yes doesn't always mean yes. Maybe you're not a man of integrity. Maybe you have some kind of hidden agenda. Maybe that's it. Maybe you have some ulterior motives in changing your plans. Well, Paul has already in chapter 1, and we've looked at this in great detail, uh, defended his integrity from a theological standpoint, and, and it's, it's an uh, incredibly powerful section we've looked at. But now we come to the end of chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2 where Paul explains why he changed his plans. It's not because you can't trust yes and no. It's not because I'm fickle. It's not because I'm in it for self-interest. Notice what he says in verses 23 and 24. But I call God to witness against me. He's taken an oath here. Because there's some in the church that just don't believe anything he has to say. He says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. Well, spare them from what? Well, some sort of church discipline. Some sort of chastisement. In fact, when you go back to Paul's first letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, he had already spoken about this. Notice in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, verses 18 through 21, Paul had written this. He says, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Ah, he's never going to come back. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? You make your choice. How do you want me to show up? It depends on what you do between now and when I come. Well, at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes very much in the same vein, chapter 13 and verse 2. He says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Paul says here, I decided not to make the visit. It was to spare you from some rather strong church discipline. There was need for strong action. There was need for forceful decisions to be made in the life of the congregation. And Paul realized that if he traveled to Corinth as his travel itinerary had been originally, he was going to be a very, some would say in the church, harsh, difficult, confrontive kind of visit. And as Paul thinks about it, well, what would that have led to? Well, there would have been undoubtedly a nasty confrontation. There seems to have been, as we will look at as we work our way through this letter, a ringleader of the opposition to Paul in the congregation. There were those who sided with this ringleader. Not everybody did. Some stood on the sidelines not sure what to do. And so there would have been a, a confrontation. The previous one, as Paul indicates in chapter 2, verse 1, didn't go well when he made a surprised, unannounced visit. Didn't go real well. And so Paul says, if I came again so soon, 
who knows what would have resulted. It might, he might have inadvertently alienated the whole congregation. Uh, he, he might have lost the mission plant that was there in Corinth. Who knows what would have happened. And, but Paul says, if I had come as my original itinerary was, discipline and very strong discipline would have been in order. I would have had to have come with the rod. I would have had to have come and exercised my apostolic authority to the utmost. But Paul says, I didn't want to do that. Instead, I want you Corinthians to deal directly with your own issues. If you paraphrase what Paul is saying here, I want you to take the initiative yourself in church discipline, not do nothing about it and wait till I show up. Take the initiative yourself. I want all of you who have been off track to come to repentance before I come so we can have not a painful, difficult visit, but a joyful one. And so Paul says, if you want to know, that's why I changed my travel plans. Not because I'm unreliable, not because I don't care anything about you in Corinth, not because I make decisions on what's best for me, not because I act on whatever whim happens to cross my mind at the moment. No, I decided not to come to you as originally planned because I wanted to spare you. You notice verse 24, this note of joy. We work with you for your joy. I seek your joy rather than your pain. Do you not understand my heart for you? Paul says, I deeply love all of you. You, you notice uh, end of verse 4 of chapter 2, uh, to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. I want you to take the leadership in your own affairs here in the congregation, Paul says, to act upon conviction because it's right, not because I said so and because I'm going to show up. I am not, notice verse 24, Paul says, I am not Lord over your faith. I am not the dictator in Corinth. I would rather persuade than coerce you. I have no wish to dominate you. I have no wish to tell you what to think, to tell you what to do, except to keep your thinking and your heart and your congregation in line with the message of the gospel and with the person and work of Christ. Yes, to keep centered on that, but there's a lot of other things that people can differ on. I'm not going to be the dictator and tell you what to think and do in every particular circumstance. And so verse 24, Paul says, what were we raised up for? We meaning I and Silas and Timothy. We were raised up as helpers for your joy. We want you to be a joyful, vibrant congregation. That's why we were called to Corinth in the first place. We're not interested in ordering you around, Paul says. But we're here to point you to those things that please the Lord and then together joyfully follow, love, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's, let me stop here and apply these words to our congregation here, Grace Lutheran Brethren in Botno. So, you've called me here to be your pastor. I arrived in November of 2009, so it's been a few years. But I want to remind you of something. I am not your boss. I am called here to serve you. You are not here to serve me. I am here to serve you. I'm not here to dominate. I'm not here to dictate. I'm not here to say my way or the highway. When you have a religious leader, by the way, that is that way, it's a mark of a cult. Don't misunderstand that. We are called to be servant leaders. 
what's best for the people sitting in these rows of chairs? That's the question to always ask. That's the question that must be asked. And the Bible is, is very clear on this. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5 and verse 3, uh, we're cutting into the middle of a sentence here, but he's talking about pastors, he's talking about other spiritual leaders, and he says spiritual leadership is not domineering those in your charge. Hey, I'm in charge here. I'm the tip of the pyramid. That isn't what spiritual leadership is about, but being examples to the flock, not dictators over them. Jesus, same point, Matthew 23 and verse 8. Jesus says, you only have one master. It's not any one of us as human beings. There is one who is our master, and what's the relationship among the rest of us? We're all brothers and sisters together. So it's not me at the top of the pyramid. It is us together as brothers and sisters in Christ, living in the joy of the Lord, seeking to witness and to evangelize. We only have one master, and we're all under that one authority. Paul, in the book of Romans chapter 14 he's talking about matters in the church which are not at the heart of the gospel the issue was eating meat and how food is prepared because you had Jews and Gentiles in the same church and there were disputes over all kinds of things like that and Paul says who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another you're not the dictator you're not the one to dominate and tell everybody in the church what to do whether you're a lay person or the pastor who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who is the another? It's the Lord. Each of us is accountable to the Lord. One day when I stand before Christ, I will not be you know, answering to you and you will not be answering to me. We will answer to the Lord. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So, then a pastor's focus cannot be so, in all of this, how are my needs going to be met? That's the question I need to ask. You don't want that kind of a pastor. Or, in my decision-making, I know we could choose A, B, or C, but what would be best for me in all of this? A pastor's life and ministry cannot be marked by a self-centered, self-serving individualism how harmful that sort of thing is to the congregation. A pastor must be a servant and must function out of love for God. And the result is if a spiritual leader loves God, as a result of if it's genuine love, then that spiritual leader will love God's You see, spiritual leadership always has to take place in the context of Jesus' question to Peter in John 21 that we had for our second reading this morning. Remember, Peter had denied Jesus, and it's after the resurrection, and early in the morning, and the disciples, some of them out fishing all night, hadn't caught anything. And Jesus speaks to Peter early in the morning on the shore of Galilee. And Jesus says to Peter three times, do you love me? And if we as spiritual leaders, and I'm including myself in this, if I dare to respond with a yes, then the command that follows, if you truly love me, then you will feed, what's the word, my sheep. They're not yours. Belong to the Lord. 
If you truly love me, you will care for those who belong to me. You will nurture them, you will feed them, you will have a servant's heart for those that I place under your care. Paul says, that's the way I want to operate in Corinth. I'm not here to tell you what to do and to throw my weight around. I am here for our mutual joy together in ministry and service. And so Paul says, if I had come as when I had originally planned, because things are a mess in the church, I would have had to have exercised my apostolic authority. And Paul says there would have been those who would have misunderstand, misunderstood. Oh, there he is trying to domineer. Oh, there he is trying to be a dictator. He knew some in the church would, would say that sort of thing. And so he says, so the issues that I had addressed in 1 Corinthians and on the visit I made after that uh, have not been resolved yet. And so Paul, what he's saying here, if I can summarize this entire section, what Paul is saying is, for theological reasons, for your growth in Christ, because I want you as a congregation to be strong and healthy and independent, me not having to handhold you on, on every particular issue, because of my love for you, putting all those things together, I decided to revise my travel plans. I hope you understand what I'm saying, Paul says. But then Paul expands on it a little bit in the opening verses of chapter 2. Paul says, added to all of this, I didn't make my visit when planned because there already has been enough pain to go around. And you notice what he says in verse 1, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. What was the first painful visit? Well, it wasn't when he came to Corinth the first time and established the congregation and was there for a year and a half. That was a joyous time. But seemingly, and, and, and Bible scholars agree on this, that somewhere between that initial missionary visit and the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul made an emergency visit to Corinth and it didn't go well. He calls it a painful visit. And Paul says, if I had come back as planned, it would have been another one of the same kind another painful visit and so in fact what I want you to notice is in the opening verses of chapter 2 all the pain language that's here I've highlighted it on the screen I made up my mind not to make another painful visit for if I cause you pain who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pain verse 3 uh, I wrote as I did. He wrote another letter. It's not 1st or 2nd Corinthians. It's one in between the two that's now lost. A very harsh and pointed letter. Paul says, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those from you in the congregation who should have made me rejoice. And notice how he describes the letter now lost. Verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much, notice these words, affliction, anguish of heart, and many tears, not to cause you pain, although that's what happened, he'll acknowledge in chapter 7 but because I wanted to express my love for you, you're going the wrong way, and I love you too much to let you go down the road that direction. And then verse 5, Paul says, now if anyone has caused pain, um, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, uh, also to you. And so some strong pain language in this passage. And so Paul says, rather than making the planned trip, Rather than causing pain for everybody concerned, we've already had enough to go around for all of us. He says, I wrote a letter instead. He describes it in verse 
uh, four, the letter out of affliction, anguish of heart, and many tears. I wrote you a letter instead. And if, you, if I paraphrase what Paul is saying, as he says, I faced a dilemma. To come to Corinth, when I originally said I would, would have intensified the problem, more pain, who knows what disaster would have resulted. But if I stayed away, the problems were going to fester and get worse. So what do I do? So Paul says, what I did instead was write a very difficult letter from much affliction, anguish of heart, and many tears. And I was hoping that my visit, which was painful, which preceded the letter, and this letter, very painful and difficult, that the Holy Spirit would use both of those things together so that when I do return to Corinth, at a later date, I can do so with a revived and joyful heart, not with a grieved spirit. Paul says, if you want to know why I changed my plans, it's not of fickleness. It's for all these many, many reasons. Uh, as I thought about all the pain language Paul uses here, and as he expresses his love, abundant love, end of verse 4, for all of you, the analogy that came to mind for me was that of a surgeon. A surgeon cuts people and causes pain. Well, you don't know it when you're under anesthetic, but when you wake up. Okay, a surgeon cuts people, he causes pain, but he doesn't delight in causing pain. A surgeon doesn't cut any more than he has to. A surgeon doesn't cut for the sake of cutting. A surgeon takes delight in people. He cares about his patients or her patients. He wants the best for those individuals. He wants them to be strong and healthy and joyful. And so the surgery process, which involves pain, takes place because through the pain, restoration and healing and good things unfold. Paul is, in essence, like a surgeon. Yes, some of these things have been painful, but like a surgeon, there needs to be some cutting before the healing can take place. And all of it is done because I love and care for you more than you can understand. I want the best for you, and I want your church to be strong and healthy and healed. And so Paul says there's been a lot of hurt. Maybe you're hurt and you're upset with me. Well, I've experienced hurt too, says Paul in this passage. It's not a one-way street. We're joined together in Christ so that when you hurt, I hurt, and vice versa, Paul says. And so he says, I, I wrote this letter, this very painful, difficult letter, and he said, I, as we're going to discover in chapter 7, Paul sent Titus to, to, to find out how they received the letter. And it was with repentance, Titus told him. And so Paul says, I, I'm, I'm glad that that's what happened. He says, in fact, I'm really sure of all of you. I, I sent this letter, uh, verse 3, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. You'd take the letter in the spirit in which it was sent. You'd make the necessary changes. There would be repentance. I am confident in all of you, and my confidence was not swept aside. So yes, these last months have been difficult, Paul says, but love and pain are not incompatible, and God has brought healing and restoration. Let me wrap up what I want to say just with a minute or two of some observations, personal observations. Um, I have been in Christian ministry now for over 40 years teaching in a Christian university, um, teaching in a Bible college, teaching in a seminary, involved full-time in Christian publishing as a writer and an editor, being a pastor, it's been over 40 years. 
And over those years, I've come to understand, well, many things, but in the context of this passage, five things that I've learned personally over 40-plus years. Let me just list them for you one by one very briefly in closing. Number one, ministry always calls for the highest possible integrity, period. Number two, the demands of leadership and ministry, because you're a public person, often leave a person vulnerable to insinuations and false accusations. Number three, I've also learned this by experience, people can be tough. Nobody here, of course. But people can be tough or, along that same line, assume the worst about something. Number four, what I've learned is through it all, God is good. And finally, number five, I've also learned, as Jesus promised, he keeps on building his church in the face of all things. The church, capital C, and the church, small c, the individual congregations. And so my, my final um, admonition, if that's the right word to, to, to give to each of you, is I, I want to challenge you in a prayerful way, urge you to adorn the gospel as I need to and as you need to, to adorn the gospel by living lives marked by integrity and grace and love for others. And that through everything, individually and as a congregation, our chief endeavor in our lives and in our congregation is that in all that we do and say, all of it above all else is to bring glory to God and to him alone. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, this has been a long, complicated passage of Scripture, but boy, are there some powerful lessons in these verses. And so, Lord, uh, people watch our lives during the week, how we go about our business or whatever it might be, uh, how we conduct ourselves, what we say, how we act. People are always observing, not that they're intently focused on us, but something that seems out of line will all of a sudden grab their attention. Lord, may it be our heart's endeavor to live lives marked by integrity. That our yes is yes and our no is no. That when we commit to something, we honor that commitment. That when we're involved in ministry, it's not about what can I get out of it, but how can I serve others and minister for the glory of your name. And so, Lord, build that spirit day by day into each one of us and make us strong, whatever our calling, as your servants, day by day, we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.